John, an eyewitness to Jesus' life ministry, uh, death, resurrection, wrote to churches of his day who were being confused by a new heresy called Gnosticism. The people who embraced Gnosticism said that Jesus, the Son of God, didn't really come in the flesh, that he didn't become a human being, that he therefore didn't really die on the cross, and he didn't really rise victoriously from the grave. This heresy tried to strip the gospel of its power, to strip it of its power over sin and, and death and hell by saying that Jesus didn't really come to save us. What Gnostics said was that we are saved by a very special knowledge, a mysterious knowledge, a supernatural knowledge that God grants us. Gnosis in Greek means knowledge especially knowledge of a, mysti a mystical or a mysterious kind. And, and they said it doesn't matter how we live. Uh, it doesn't really matter because what we do with our bodies doesn't affect what we believe in our minds and our spirits. And John, of course, said most emphatically that the Gnostics were wrong, that this heresy must be stopped. And so he wrote this first letter, 1 John, of his three letters to correct an error that was creeping into the churches of his day. So let's talk about Jesus for a minute this morning. Because Jesus is really at the pivotal point of this. He's the, he's the answer. He's the solution. And he is the crux of the matter. He, he's the one we must decide who he is. So first of all, let me ask you this. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why did he come in the first place? Well, the biggest reason, as we know, Dave even alluded to today, was to save us. To save us uh, from our sins, to save us from hell, to, to redeem us, uh, and, and actually paid the penalty for us, didn't he? He paid the penalty of our sins by going to the cross. He freed us from the bondage of sin that held us in. And Jesus set us free from who and what we were so that we could be the new people he has created us to be. Romans 8.1 says this, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. If you were here last Sunday, uh, Arthur uh, shared a, an emotionally charged, I'd say, communion meditation, in which he described who we were before we received our freedom in Christ. Thank God that through Jesus, who we used to be, doesn't matter. It's who we are now in Christ. And in Christ we have been given a new life. He has been uh, given us a new power and a new direction and a new way of living. And he gave that to us, not when we deserved it. He gave it to us by his grace. He gave it to us because that's how much he loves us. That's how much he wanted us to come home to him. But there was a bigger reason, or another reason, not bigger reason, but a, a secondary reason, which is also a big reason, why Jesus came to earth. And we want to talk about that today. He not only came to save us from hell, but to help us live the new life he's given us. He came to show us the kind of life that God wants us to live. No one ever lived on earth like Jesus did. 
Everyone from the time of Adam and Eve up until the time of Jesus was born with a sinful nature, a nature that made them and us prone to sin. And so the Bible says that everyone that lived, everyone besides Jesus that has ever lived on this planet is sinful, <laughs> that no one is righteous, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but not Jesus. Jesus was different. Jesus was sinless. Jesus was sin-free. Jesus lived the only perfectly righteous life anyone has ever lived. And that is why he could be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Now, we cannot live the kind of life Jesus did by our own power. There's no way we could possibly live like Jesus. But when we put our faith in Jesus to save us, he makes us new people and he gives us the power to live as he lived. In Christ, we experience a new birth and we become different people than we were. Not only that, but he gives us his spirit. His spirit comes to indwell in us, to, to live in us, and to give us the power to live as God wants us to live. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. Oh, before we go on, I want to ask you one other thing. What was it about Jesus that made him so remarkable? What was remarkable about his life, his, his ministry? Why would we say Jesus is vastly different than everyone else around him? Anybody want to answer? Anybody want to venture an answer? What was so different about Jesus? I'm hearing a few things, but they're said very softly. <laughs> he loved like no one had ever loved before. Unconditional way. What? He was sinless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just you know, point the finger at somebody else. You know, point out all their faults and everything. What are you going to say about Jesus that way? You know, this this guy is perfect. He's sinless. Yeah, he had priority of his life, and it didn't matter what was going on around him. What God wanted him to do, he's doing that. Okay, so he's bringing that into the equation too. That he is God living in flesh. He spoke with authority, didn't he? He spoke not like their scribes and Pharisees, but when he spoke, there was the ring of truth in every word that came out of his mouth. I mean, there's so many things that we could say that. Jesus was very different. And this is the kind of difference that Jesus wants to live within us. He wants to create in us not only the new potential, not only a new life, but what to do with that life. What we can do day to day with that life. This series we're calling Witnesses in the World. Because John stresses in this letter, particularly the first letter, how important our witness for Jesus is. He uses the word witness no fewer than nine times. And he's trying to help those of his, his day, his era, his churches that he was personally involved with to stand up and say as he did, Hey, I know Jesus. I am a witness for Jesus. John did that in the first few verses of the letter. He says, hey, I was an eyewitness. I saw this guy. I heard this guy speak. I reached out and touched him. I was with him for over three years. And let me tell you about it. And then he says to all the others of the churches, you too are a witness. You're a witness to what Jesus has done in your life. You're a witness to his power. You're a witness to what he said and did. And you witness not only with your words... You are a witness. Remember we talked about it's not so important that you 
would witness, but that you be the witness God has created you to be. So that's what we want to talk about this morning as we're talking about witnesses in the world. How can we live as Jesus lived and thereby become more effective witnesses? Last week we read that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We saw that if we want to have fellowship with God, we must walk in the light as he is in the light. And, and we must not continue living in the darkness of this world. We must uh, not be expected to live a perfect, sin-free life as Jesus did. We are going to sin. And so John talks about that, as we mentioned last week. He said, if you, if you deny that you have sin in life, you're a liar. Because <laughs> you have sin. I have sin. You have sin. But we are not to continue in sin. We are not to live continuously or, or as a pattern or is a lifestyle of sin. And when we sin, John makes it clear that we must humbly confess our sin to God so that our relationship with Him is not hindered in any way. The new life we are to live in Christ can only be lived when there is honesty between us and God, when there is humility uh, that we have before God. And so this morning we're going to go to 1 John again. We're going to be in the second chapter. We're going to start with verse 3. So if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to that. We'll put the words on the screen. But if you have your own Bible, I really want to encourage you to kind of be going back and forth, maybe underlining some things or making some notations for yourself. 1 John 2, starting in verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now in these four verses, we find the heart of what I want to talk about today. How do we walk as Jesus walked? How do we live as Jesus lived? It's said very clearly right here. The main points are this. First of all, if we want to know God, then we will obey God. Verse 3 says, We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Secondly, if we want to know God, then we will love God. Verse 5 says, But if anyone does his word, obeys His word, love for God is truly made complete in Him. In fact, both love and obedience are brought out in verse 5, are they not? If anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. Now, love for other people is also important. We're going to get to that later. John mentions it many times in this letter, starting verse 9 is first place, but in two weeks we're going to really talk about loving other people with the kind of the unconditional love that was mentioned in Jesus. But what we want to focus on today is these two things then, obeying God and loving God. John makes in this, this letter two very powerful statements. He says, God is light and God is love. These are, are character attributes about God. These are things true of God every time, every place, all the time. And, and this is true of God. And if we want to know God as light, then we must live in obedience. If we want to know God as love, then we must love God as he first loved us. And then John says in verse 6, kind of what brings us to the title of today, he says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. They must walk the way Jesus walked. Jesus 
lived in obedience and in love. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9 says this, Son though he was, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. I want you to think about that for a minute. The one who was in eternity with God, the one who is equal with God, co-equal, Jesus the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, from the very beginning, from the creation of this earth, took all of that off and went to earth, as Philippians 2 says, and he became a man. Not only becoming a man, but he became a servant of man. And not only becoming a servant, but he gave his life on our behalf. Think about that for a minute. The Bible says that Jesus learned obedience to his Father. It means that he subjected himself to the Father's will when he came to earth. Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus shares fully in all the experiences that we have of this life, all the emotions, all the full range of, of things that we have to go through. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us, with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Now we see many examples uh, and expressions of Jesus' obedience to the Father. First one I point out is his baptism. And all the people are coming to John the Baptist, a baptism of repentance of, of their sins, are saying, God, we have sinned, we need you. We need your kingdom. That's all they're saying. And they are being baptized in the Jordan River by John. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes up, John's cousin. He's perfect. He's sinless. Why would he have a baptism of repentance? And John even objects to it, doesn't he? John says, you know, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. You know, I'm not worthy to do this. And Jesus said, you know, just let this happen because we're going to fulfill what God wants here. And so John baptizes him as he has baptized everyone else. Jesus is learning obedience. You know, I'm always surprised when somebody objects to baptism. When they say, I want to believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to do that baptism thing. I'd say, well, what? What? Man, this is so simple. This is, this is just, a, you know, obeying whatever he says. He says, be baptized. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Be baptized and you receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, they, these are just things the Bible says. Why are you objecting to this? I think the whole point of the baptism is that God wants to know, are you willing to obey? Are you willing to submit? Are you willing to surrender to whatever I want you to do in your life? Here's the first thing you do. Show me. Show your obedience. Of course, the supreme example of Jesus' obedience is when he went to the cross. We know on the night before that, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying to the Father, is there another way? Is there some other way we can accomplish why I, why I came? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he surrenders himself completely to the will of God. This is how Jesus lived, in love and obedience to his Heavenly Father. So, this is how we can be assured in our relationship with God are we walking as Jesus did? How many of you this morning sometimes doubt your relationship with God? You may not want to raise your hand. You may just think, yeah, I, I'm not going to raise my hand for this. I'm not going to confess this. You ever have these doubts, you know, nagging things like, man, am I really, am I really saved? Am I really okay with God? 
how do I know I'm a Christian, after all, or the right kind of Christian? You know, am I the kind of Christian I like to be? How do I know that I'm pleasing to God? This is not a new thing, this thing called doubt. This is something that every Christian has experienced at some time or another in their life. And, you know, you're feeling very strong, you're feeling very faithful, you're being very true, you're walking in love and obedience, and all of a sudden, you know, you get hammered by something in life. And, and you lose focus, you lose direction, and pretty soon, you're just like, where am I? What am I doing? You know, is my relationship with God what I thought it was? And John wants to address this. Because this was not new. This was what the people of his time were also experiencing. And so in this first letter, he's trying to get the Christians grounded and to give them the assurance of their relationship with God. He wants them to have confidence in their relationship. And so he speaks very clearly to this in a number of times. And he uses this phrase I want to show you. And it's right here in verse 3 of our text. He says, We know that we have come to know him if... And then he fills that in. We know that we have come to know him, as in verse 3. And he uses a statement like this, sometimes exactly this statement, sometimes very similar to that, over ten times in this letter, I noticed. And he's trying to build up the believers and say, you know you're okay with God if these things are happening in your life. First one he says, verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And it's not that you have to keep him perfectly. Not that you have to be, you know, I never messed up. But, oh man, I'm, I'm slipping up again. And the devil will use that against you. But is your desire to keep his commands, is the, the impact of your life, your, your lifestyle, I'm following whatever God wants me to do. I, that's what I'm striving to do. And then secondly, he says, down in verse 5, If anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Very similar phrase. Want to know that you're okay with God? God's love is being made complete in you. You're seeing yourself loving people you didn't before, and you're seeing your love for God growing. Notice the contrast with Gnosticism, where Gnostics said, the thing you need is knowledge. You need a special, mysterious knowledge. If you have that, it doesn't matter what else you're doing. You don't have to worry about your life. You don't have to worry about the ups and downs, command, uh, obedience, love. All of that doesn't matter because you know. You know what you need to know. You know, you have this special, supernatural knowledge. And really, knowing God isn't mysterious. It's not about getting some kind of weird experience and hope that God will zap you sometime while you're in prayer and suddenly you're at a different level than you were before and it doesn't matter what happens down here in the, the lower levels of life. That's not what it's about. It's simple. It's straightforward. If you want to know you're with God, you love God and you obey God. That's where you live day after day. Now, we're not saved by loving and obeying God. I want to make that clear. You're not saved by yourself. You're not saved by your good works. You're not saved because you can love people like no one else loves people. That's not what I'm talking about. You are saved by the grace of God. You are saved by what Jesus already did on the cross for you. You can't earn that. But once you are given a new life in Christ, how do you know that you're in God, that you're walking in the right place? There is love and obedience characterizing your life. They are the proof that you're on track and that you're with God. And you can have assurance 
in your personal relationship with God when we see that you're obeying His Word and you're loving Him even as He loved you. Let's go on. Verse 7. 1 John 2, verse 7. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet, I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in Him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother and lives in the light, and there is nothing, there is nothing in him to stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the, the darkness has blinded him. And just remember for a moment, as John says this about light and darkness, and as he's talking about a new command and an old one, Remember that he's refuting a heresy called Gnosticism. He is reestablishing the truth about Jesus, the only Savior of the world. And what he's saying to them is not new. It's not like you never heard this stuff before. And so it's not new. And yet, you seem to have forgotten it. <laughs> it seems like it's not weighing into your life the way it used to. So I'm going to remind you of this as if it was something entirely new. I want you to get this right. Because... Here you are walking around in the darkness when you're supposed to be walking around in the light. And that truth of that command that he's talking as a new command or an old command is essentially to love and obey God, which was seen in Jesus' life and needs to be seen in our lives as the darkness is overcome by the true light that is already shining, which is Jesus. Let's go on to verse 12. Here John pauses in his letter which he expects to be read to the churches. You know, they, they didn't have you know, a way to send this by email. They didn't have a way to distribute it with a copy machine, multiple copies for everybody. There would be one letter, and it would be hand-carried to church and read to the church. And then they would go to another church, and they would read it. He's expecting that to happen. And as it's read to the congregation, he wants to make sure everybody is still with him, that everybody's still listening. And so he addresses here, the various age groups or maturity levels of people in the mix. He again assures them of their good standing with God if they continue to walk in love and obedience. This is what he says. He says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him as from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. And I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Children would be children. <laughs> They'd be either the youngest ones who we've sent off to kids' church today, or they could be young in the faith. They could be the immature, the brand new believers. And he says, you need to be assured of one thing. Your sins are forgiven. You're good. You're good to go because you have put your faith in Christ. And I write to you fathers. It could also be mothers. He's writing to those who are more mature, either in age or in faith. Be assured that you indeed know the eternal one who is from the beginning. And you will always know him. He's going to be with you to the end. So rest in that. You know, your life may be drawing to a close. You may be thinking about your last days. Don't worry about it. You know the one who knows the beginning and the end. And I write to you young men, to you young women, who are new in the faith, 
but gaining strength. And, and maybe you're 20 years old, or maybe you're 30 years old, and you're, you're just growing your wings, and you're starting to do something for God. And he says, I want to say something to you. You have overcome the evil one. You have done it. You have, you have gotten going in the right place. You are living in a way that will continue overcoming him. And so, with these words of encouragement, John is building up the young people and the older people, even the children among them, to know that their relationship, their strength is found in the relationship with God. That reminds me of my father-in-law. My father-in-law is excellent, speaking to his children and grandchildren, kind of you know, saying words of, of hope and vision and blessing in our lives. And he, he tries to anticipate what our lives are going to be. And I, I've heard him say things to our children and uh, to other grandchildren, you know, this is who you are. This is how you're going to live. This is what your life is going to be like. And even when they're down, even when they're making mistakes and, and all the other stuff that goes on in our lives, constantly speaking this vision. This is what John is doing for the people of the congregation. You are not the people of darkness. You are the people of the light. You are not subject uh, and to be crushed by the evil one. You are overcoming him. You are not doubtful. You are full of faith. And he's assuring them and building them up and giving them confidence in their lives. And then at the end of these verses today, I want to speak to John, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. He con- concludes with a command and a warning. Notice what he says. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Amen. Amen. When John talks about do not love the world, obviously he's not saying do not love the world like we think of. Well, don't love anybody in the world. Don't love the world as it is. Don't don't love the people of this world. For in fact, John three sixteen says what? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So he's not talking about denying love for the world. He's talking about do not love worldliness, isn't he? He's saying, don't be like the world. Don't love the things of the world that are really distracting you and pulling you away from God. And he, he even lays these out here. He says, in this world, there's the lust of the eyes, you know, the, the gratifying desires, the, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And you know, your translation may say a little bit differently. But you think about the things that pull us away from God to pursue self-centered, sensual desires of life, to gratify them any way we possibly can, to have eyes that are constantly looking for more and more and more. We're insatiable of finding new ways to do bad stuff or to to live in a place where the pride that is in our hearts by our nature is coming out all the time and we're acting more and more like the devil. Remember the devil led a rebellion of angels against God and he was cast out of heaven and he's been trying to create problems here on earth ever since. When we live by pride, we're living like him. We're saying it in our arrogance, God, I know better than you how to live my life. 
This is that worldly way of living that John says, do not love the world. I'm reminded of Romans 12, 2, where the Apostle Paul said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the world is darkness. We must walk in the light. The world is opposed to God, but we are obedient to God. The world is rebelling against God, but we love God and do whatever pleases Him in our lives. That's where we need to live. And if we do, we are assured that we are who we are supposed to be for God and our witness will be strong. Past Friday night, i got to tell you this as I finish. Past Friday night, I was home alone because Jane was down here with the ladies' game night, having a good time. And suddenly my cell phone rang, and I looked down, and it said, Earl buys, that's my neighbor across the street, answered the phone, it's his wife Liz. She said, John, Earl's fallen, can you come over right away and help me get him up? I said, yeah, I'll be right over. Uh, so what's, what's happening? She says, he's been sick, he's just really weak, he's fallen to the floor, I can't get him back up. And so I ran across the street, and he was on the floor of their family room. She had tried to help him get up to go to the bathroom from the couch there, you know, and he slipped, and he's laying there. And, and she's saying, you get around behind him, and I'll pull his hands, we'll get him back up on his feet. And, and Earl's laying there as I went around him, and he's trying to get up one more time, just lean up, and he just slumped back to the floor. His, his face kind of fell against a the chair there. And she said, uh, I'm just calling 911. I'm not going to fool around with this anymore. And she went over to the phone to call 911. I turned and looked back at Earl, and he had stopped breathing. I mean, that quick, he just stopped. And he's turning all purple. And so I said, are you getting the call through? You know, we got to have help here right away. And all these things are flushed through my mind like, you idiot, you don't know CPR. <laughs> you don't know what to do for this guy. He needs somebody right now. So our hope is in the 911 call. She gets it through. They say, we, we have somebody right around the corner from you. They'll be there momentarily. And within about two minutes, a policeman showed up at the door. And he came in. He kind of took over. He got me to take Liz out of the room. And in another two minutes, the, the medics who were just a couple blocks away were called in, and they come in. And then the fire truck and another ambulance. I mean, we had the whole street full of emergency vehicles and people. But they couldn't do anything to save Earl's life. That quickly, he was gone. Uh, we waited there for a few minutes for their daughter and her family to come in from Noakesville. Uh, she's the only daughter, two granddaughters. That, that's it. Very small family, but very tight family. They've been our neighbors for about 12 years, so we're really impacted by this death, sudden death. Even though he'd had a lot of health problems, a lot of heart attacks and bypasses and pacemaker, defibrillator, all that stuff, He's still making it day after day, taking it easy, and suddenly he's gone. So a few minutes later, everybody's down you know, at the emergency room. We gave them time to go do that and everything, and then I, I went down to just see what's happening. And they took me back in the emergency room to the trauma room where Earl had been pronounced dead. And in that room behind a curtain was his wife and his daughter. And so I went in and talked with them and prayed with them. We hugged each other and talked about Earl's life. Thankfully, they're believers. And they said, you know, he's not going to be hurting anymore. You know, 
he's with Jesus now, it's okay. And already they were coming to these realizations, and I'm so thankful for that. And just then, the two granddaughters, who were 10 and 14, I think, showed up at the door. They want to come in there. And Mom's like, you don't need to come in here and see Grandpa like this, you know. Don't, don't come in. And so she and I went out um, and met them in the hallway. And what, what hit me harder than anything of that night was when she said to these two granddaughters, you know, they said, Poppy had a good life. Poppy had a good life. And, you know, we were blessed that we had so many years with Poppy. That's the name my grandkids call me. And that's when it hit home. This could be me in that trauma room. This could be my kids and grandkids saying, Poppy had a good life. We're glad we had lots of years with Poppy. What else do you think they might say about this, Poppy? What I want them to say is, he obeyed God, he loved God. And he lived for God. What would somebody say about your life? If you want to know that you know God, then love Him. If you want to know that you know God, then live for Him. Obey Him. Let's pray. Father, as we have to, uh, at moments, examine our own lives, when we see someone else pass from this life, help us to realize what really matters, what really counts. As we go through days of uh, trouble or distractions, as we go through uh, various trials here on earth, help us to not lose our focus. Help us to realize that, that really all that matters is that we love you and that we obey you and that we let others know by the, the kind of witness that we are, the witness that we live of who Jesus is and the difference he's making in our lives. Help us to tell others about Jesus. Today I pray for each of us that we would uh, just draw near to you and know that our assurance, our hope, our confidence all come from you, from our relationship with you. It doesn't matter what life may throw at us, doesn't matter the circumstances we have to go through, that what counts is our relationship with you. And Lord, we love you. Lord, our desire is to please you. Bless us as we live for you now and as we walk as Jesus walked. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What